You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John's Gospel, the 8th chapter. Read together verses 31 through 38. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Let's pray together. Our God, we ask that your blessing upon our time of study in your word. Give us understanding, we pray. May your spirit be our guide. May your word be the center of our focus and our attention. We ask, O oh God, that you would work in our hearts, hearts of obedience and submission to your truth. Help us to respond appropriately and to worship you. And fill our hearts, we pray, with wonder and love and praise for your name and for the great uh, things that you have done and the gospel which has brought us such freedom and salvation. Uh, fill us with an appreciation for these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the question. How do spiritual slaves become liberated? How do spiritual slaves, how do slaves of sin get their freedom? What is it that happens or what is it that must take place for those who have committed sin and are thus the slaves of sin? What has to happen for those slaves to be set free and to be liberated and to enjoy the freedom that Jesus talks about? I do not believe that it would be an overstatement for me to say that the, to sum it up, to sum up the gospel this way, to say that the glorious aim of the gospel is to set men free. If you ask, what does the gospel do? How do we summarize the gospel? I think you could boil it down to this statement, and this wouldn't be an overstatement, that the glorious aim of the gospel is to set men free. Now that, through doing that, God is glorified because the gospel itself glorifies God. But how does the gospel glorify God? The gospel glorifies God by setting men free. And before somebody can be set free from their sin, they have to first recognize that they are a sinner. Before somebody can be set free from their slavery, they must recognize that they are slaves. So to answer the question, how are slaves of sin set free? To answer that, we have to go to some of the foundational principles of the gospel. Before a slave can be set free from their slavery, there must be some understanding that they are slaves, and there must be some recognition of that fact. And the slave has to come to the point of of realizing not only that he is a slave, but that the power for freedom does not rest in something he can do or some decision that he is going to make or some change that he affects in his own life. The slave must recognize that he is not only a slave, but that he is a helpless slave. And that somebody or something else outside of him must come in to set him free and to liberate him from his slavery. And that is indeed what the work of the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit illuminates the heart and the mind and the intellect and the eyes of the unbelieving sinner so that the unbelieving sinner sees his sin for what it is, 
sees the holiness of God for what it is, and sees the wrath of God and the reality of hell and the truth of righteousness and the judgment to come, and then the Spirit of God begins to change the heart and the affections and changes the mind and changes the nature so that what it once, what the sinner once hated, it he now loves, and what he once loves, he now hates, and he comes to the conclusion that I need to be saved and I need to be delivered from my sin because if I don't have deliverance from my sin, I stand before the wrath of God and I have nothing to plead my case. That is all the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you encounter somebody who understands that they are a sinner and they understand that they need to be set free from their sin and they long to be set free from their sin, if you encounter that individual, then you have encountered somebody upon whom the Spirit of God has been working because that change of affection and that change of mind and that understanding does not come out of the rock-hard, sinful heart of the natural man. Something is happening on that man to give him that insight. So how is it that sinners are set free? The Spirit of God does the work, and the Son of God, through the Spirit, draws sinners to Himself, changes their hearts, changes their minds, gives them a new nature, grants them repentance, makes them to see their sin for what it is, and through the truth of the Word and the Gospel preached, the Son sets captives free. That's how sinners are made free. The Son sets them free. And how does the Son do that? You shall know the what? The truth. The truth of the Gospel. And in knowing the truth of the Gospel and embracing that, you will be set free. If you continue in My Word, Jesus says, you are My disciples, truly, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's how sinners are set free. Through the glorious Gospel of Christ, whose aim is to set men free from their sin. Now this is all in the context of Jesus differentiating between true disciples and false disciples. And we've looked at that. And it's in the context of speaking of slavery. And we kind of hammered out what that slavery looks like, why we are enslaved, how that works out in our lives, how it affects the choices we make, why we're in bondage, what that bondage looks like. We spent a couple weeks doing that. Now we kind of pick it up in verse 35. We are continuing now with the theme of slavery. But remember, Jesus is seeking to reveal the true hearts of those Jews who had believed in Him. Verse 29 and 30 and 31 describes these Jews who had come to believe in Him, but then Jesus is revealing their heart and showing that that belief is a shallow belief. And He says to them, if you are truly My disciples, if you truly have believed and embraced Me, then these are the things that will be true of you. And one of the things that reveals that their heart was not truly saved was Jesus indicates that they were still slaves of sin. He says you will be free, and you're not free because you're currently slaves. Remember that offended them? And so then Jesus says, you are slaves. It shouldn't offend you. It should be patently obvious to anybody who looks at any sinner that they are a slave to sin. And everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. That would have offended them. And now verses 35, 36, all the way down through verse 38, Jesus does three things here. We're going to look at two of them this morning. He does three things. He gives to them a solemn warning. He gives to them a glorious promise and then a stern rebuke. The solemn warning is in verse 35 and the glorious promise is in verse 36. And those are the two things that we're going to look at this morning. A very solemn warning In verse 35, Jesus, in continuing with the theme of slavery, shows to them that they were still indeed slaves. And he declares that in verse 35. So let's pick it up in verse 35. Verse 34, actually, let's read that. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. That's kind of an enigmatic statement, isn't it? What is Jesus referring to there? What does he mean by this? Talk of a slave and a son and a house and remaining in that house forever, and the distinguishing between the slave and the son, what is Jesus alluding to? What is He driving at? What does He mean by that? What is the content of that analogy? 
A slave does not remain in the house forever. A son does remain in the house forever. What does that refer to? Whose house are we talking about? This is an analogy that is different than the analogy of slavery in verse 34. The subject is the same, slavery and slaves, but Jesus is using an entirely different analogy. And here's the analogy that he used. Actually, I think the, the, the key to this is in, the, in understanding the context. And, and here's the context. Who are the slaves in that slave house analogy? Who are the slaves that he's referring to? It's these quote-unquote believing Pharisees that he is describing here. Who is the son that he's making reference to in the analogy? Who fulfills that role? It's Jesus who fulfills that role, right? So he is the son in the analogy. They are the slaves in the analogy. Now here is the analogy. Back in that day, picture it this way. You have a household or a home. And this is something that would have been common to the Jews. You have a household or a home. In that home you have a master. Now the master of the house in the analogy is not sin. That was the analogy of verse 34. This is a different analogy because Jesus is in no way related to the... He's not a son of sin. So the analogy would break down if the master in view is sin. It's not sin. The master in view in the analogy of verse 35 is the father. It's God. So here's the analogy. You have a home, and in that home is a son, and in that home is a slave. Now both the son and the slave live in the same home, and they are both related to the same master. But the son and the slave are related to the same master in two entirely different ways. The slave is related to the master as one who is owned by, as property and one who is controlled and dominated. The son is related to the master as one who is beloved, one who is cherished, and one who has full rights to all of the father's house. Now, the slave has no rights in that home. The son has full rights in that home. His relationship to the master, the sons, is different than the slave because of who he is. So he is unique, and he is different, and he therefore has a different relationship to the master of the house than the slave has. How much freedom does the slave have? None. Not a whit of freedom. How much freedom does the son have? Full freedom. He's the son. What privileges does the slave have? None. What privileges does the son have? All the privileges of a son. What authority or power does the slave have in the home? None. How about the son? Full authority and full power. So two people living in the same home, but listen, their standing is radically different one from another. As different as they possibly could be. Now here's the thing that was expressed in the households of the Jews and of Gentiles and Romans in that day. A slave who lived in the house of a master might enjoy all of the outward physical blessings of that home. He might enjoy provision and food and shelter and clothing. If he was the slave of a nice, benevolent, kind and generous master, he might even be able to live and enjoy all of the things that the son enjoyed in that home And you might outwardly, just watching the home, not be able to tell any distinction in how the son was treated and how the slave was treated. Both of them treated kindly. But here's the thing. The son knew that all of those blessings and benefits that he enjoyed in that home were his and his forever. Because the house was his. The home was his. The estate was his. But how about the slave? The slave could lose all of that at a moment's notice because the slave had no guarantee that any of the privileges that he enjoyed would last beyond the day. Because, see, a slave was treated as property, not as persons. And the slave could be cast out of the house at any time, at any point, for any reason that the master of the house determined. So the slave always stood in danger of losing all of those blessings and being cast out. He could be given to another slave master. He could be sold to another slave master. He could be kicked out and cast away. Now, here's the warning of verse 35. Jesus speaking to the believing Jews, You are slaves, you are not sons. 
in the Father's house. You have received all of the blessings of the covenant. You have received all of the blessings of the law, the prophets, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the Word of God. All of that has been given to you. You have lived underneath that, but you have presumed upon being sons, and you are not. You are slaves, and here is the warning. You, as slaves, by God's judgment, could be cast out and miss the kingdom and experience the judgment of God for your unbelief. Now, Jesus is not speaking to them nationally as if God is going to be done with His people Israel and gone. That's not what He's talking about. But they as individuals could experience the judgment of God and miss the kingdom through their unbelief and be cast out like slaves because they don't have the status of sonship. Does everybody understand the analogy? Now, I've sort of sketched it out in black and white. Let me fill in something that will help color this out a little bit. There is another reference here, and I think the context sort of brings this in, that sort of adds some color to Jesus' analogy, and, and here it is. All the way through the passage, what has really been being discussed? Not just slavery, but something else. Their paternity or their lineage with Abraham, right? Now, the whole issue of paternity and whose father is who goes all the way back to verse 19 when they say to Jesus, where is your father? And then down in verse uh, 27, they didn't realize he'd been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus has been discussing his relationship with the Father. He is the unique divine Son, the great I Am, who is in unique relationship with the Father. They have been hearing this. And then they start talking about their own father. And who do they claim as their own father? Verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants. And they were pointing to that as being something that gained them favor and righteousness in the sight of God. We're Abraham's descendants. And then Jesus says in verse 37, I know you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I know your physical descendants of Abraham. Then in verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Oh, got, got it. Yeah, Abraham's your father. We got, it's patently obvious, right? Abraham's your father. We understand that. What were they trusting in? The fact that they were physical descendants of Abraham. Now, were they descended from Abraham? They were, weren't they? Through whom? Isaac. Did Abraham have another son? He did, didn't he? What was his name? Ishmael. Who was Ishmael's mother? A bondwoman. A slave. In Abraham's home, you had a son and you had a slave. Both were physical descendants of Abraham. Now I ask you this question. Was Ishmael treated like a son or like a slave? Ishmael was treated like a slave because that's what he was. He was the son of a bondwoman. He himself was a slave. Physical descendant of Abraham? Yep. But a slave nonetheless. And there was a point, you remember it, in Genesis chapter 21, where after Isaac had been born, it says this, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And what had happened to Ishmael? He was a slave. And he had been what? Kicked out of the house. Do you see the difference between a son and a slave in the life of Abraham, in the home of Abraham? 
Now, all of the Jews, they're talking to Jesus. What have they been saying? Abraham's our father. Abraham's our father. Abraham's our father. And here's Jesus' point. Abraham might be your physical father, but listen, you're a slave in the household of God. You have presumed upon the status of sonship because you were a physical descendant of Abraham. But Ishmael was a physical descendant of Abraham, and he was driven out because he was not, did not have Abraham's faith. He was not the child of promise. And here is the threat to those Jews who are listening to Jesus speak. Just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham means nothing. If you do not have Abraham's faith, Abraham's blood does you no good. It doesn't matter that Abraham's blood is coursing through your veins. It doesn't matter that you are a physical descendant of Abraham. You're slaves. You are slaves. You have presumed upon the status of sonship, and you have presumed that you have all of the privileges and all of the rights and all of the blessings that come with being a son. And that is only because you have enjoyed those blessings, though you're still slaves. But you're not sons. You're not sons because you do not have the faith of Abraham. And here was the irony. They were claiming Abraham as their father, and they were persecuting the very one whom Abraham longed to see. And that demonstrated that they were not true children of faith of Abraham. They were slaves. And they could be driven out of God's kingdom because of their unbelief at any time. And all of those blessings could come to a screeching halt because of their unbelief. That's the solemn warning of verse 35. Now, if you were a Jew and you were listening to Jesus said that, say that, this would have been your reaction. Just like that. That doesn't translate well to the tape, but that was it. You would scowl, you would be indignant, and you would be angry that he would suggest such a thing. Because if you were a Jew, you're discussing Abraham, and guess what Jesus has just said? You think you're children of Isaac spiritually, you're children of Ishmael spiritually. And you're going to be driven out because of your unbelief. You do not have the status of sons. They were indignant that they had that status. And Jesus is saying, it's not yours. You have presumed too much. You're hating the very one that Abraham longed to see. He says that at the end of the chapter. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. So that's the warning of verse 35, and it is a solemn warning. It is much like Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus said this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the warning. Right? You think you're sons of the kingdom because you're the physical descendants, but others who are not physical descendants will be welcomed into the kingdom, and you yourself will miss it because of your unbelief, and you'll be cast out into weeping and gnashing of teeth. The son remains in the house forever. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Two different relationships to the same master. They were slaves. He was the son. That's the solemn warning. You will miss it because of your unbelief. Now the glorious promise of verse 36. But if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now this is Jesus expressing his own liberty, his own freedom, his authority and his power to release them and to set them free. If they trusted in the son, if they came to the son, then he would set them free. And then they would not only be not slaves, does that double negative work? They would not only be not slaves, they would be what? Sons in the kingdom. They could have the status of sons, but they must come to the Son to be set free and to get the status of sons. Jesus Himself is the Son in the Father's house, and like Isaac, He had those rights and privileges because of who He was. Because of who He was. He was the divine Son. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said in verse 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, 
so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Jesus has all authority as judge and as sovereign over salvation. Why? Because of His unique relationship with the Father. Because of who He is. He has the power and the status of sonship in the Father's house. And it is His prerogative to set men free. That's why Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's why Jesus doesn't say this. If you choose to be free, you can be free. Or if you make a decision to be free, you can be free. Or if you get up and walk out of darkness under your own power, you can be free. Slaves can't do that, can they? Can one slave set another slave free? No. Can slaves set themselves free? No. Can slaves, by an act of their own will and their own power and their own decision, make themselves free men? No. But some Christians treat the the evangel of the gospel, the evangelism in the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel as if that's the case. As if the only thing that separates... Sinners in darkness from the kingdom of light is just their unwillingness to get up under their own power and walk out of darkness into light. As if it rests with them to do that. That doesn't fit Jesus' analogy, does it? What must happen? The sinner has to get up under his own power and walk to the light? No, the Son has to set him free. It's his prerogative. He is the Son. He is the one who determines who lives and who dies. He is the sovereign one. And he must enter into the darkness and set the captives free in order for the captive or the slave to have freedom. It is his prerogative. Now, are all men set free? Are all men set free? No. People die in a state of slavery to sin, don't they? All men are not set free. There are some people, and we mentioned this, I think that, I don't, this was years ago that uh, I talked about this. There are some people who teach the doctrine of prevenient grace. And this is the idea that men are born in slavery to sin, and they are slaves to sin, but then God sort of smothers, slathers this peanut butter grace over everybody, gives them enough grace to bring them up that they then, by an act of their own will, have enough freedom to choose right and wrong and to do the right thing. That's the idea of provenient grace. You say, that's new to me. I've never read that in Scripture. Exactly. You've never read that in Scripture. Because it's not in Scripture. If God sets all men free to that point, then are anybody slaves of sin? Nobody's slaves of sin, and Jesus is a liar. You are either a slave to sin, or you have been set free by the grace of God. There's no provenient grace. The Son must condescend and by an act of His will and His power and the drawing of the Holy Spirit, set the captives free. That is how Jesus described His own ministry. Now, we are set free. What are we set free from? You say, Jim, that's obvious. We're set free from sin. Okay, what does that mean? I'm set free from sin. In what way, in what sense am I set free from sin? Too often as Christians, we think of sin as something outside of us, something out there, right? We think of sin as something that I do, something I fall into, something I commit, something I trip over, or something I choose to dive into. That's how we too often think of sin. Sin is that, but listen, sin is much more than that. Sin is not just something outside of me. Sin is something inside of me. Sin is something woven through the the warp and woof of my entire being. Sin is something that dwells within me. It's not just an act outside of me. It is a principle and a power and a force and a nature that is inside of me. And as an unsaved human being, it rules me and it dominates me and it controls me and it drives me and it affects and infects everything that I do. Sin is not just something outside it is something inside. So why do I do what I do? Why, where do blasphemies and cursings and adulteries and evil and fornication, where do those come from? Jesus said it comes not from outside of a man, but where? 
from inside the man, from inside the heart. We do what we do because we are what we are. Sin is something not just outside of us that we do. Sin is something inside of us that we are. That's what we must be set free from. So now as a Christian, I have been liberated, not just from the domineering power of acts outside of me, but from, guess what? My own nature. I've been set free from my flesh. I've been set free from the sin that dwells within. That power and that principle that affects and infects everything I do, I've been liberated and set free from that. Now, does that mean that I no longer sin? Nope. Talk to my wife. She'll tell you. That's not what that means. Does it mean that I'm no longer tempted? Does it mean that? Does it mean that I no longer feel the pull of my sinful flesh? The gravity of that? That I don't feel drawn to that? Doesn't mean that. Over the course of time, I start to feel those effects less and less. I will tell you what, the effects of that draw and pull upon me are different at the age of 40 and less at the age of 40 by the grace of God than they were at the age of 16. But that's just the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. I'm still tempted. You're still tempted. That means we do still sin. We do still fall into sin. We don't love it anymore. But we are still tempted. And we do still feel... It's like a coach on the sidelines uh, barking out orders at the guys on the field. But the guys on the field don't have any obligation to obey the coach on the sidelines anymore. That's what my nature does. My nature, the power of sin, the devil, darkness, all of that, stand along the sidelines and bark out orders. But I'm not obligated to fulfill those orders and I'm not obligated to do anything that they say anymore. It's kind of like being a slave. If you can imagine this, and none of you can imagine this because, well, all of you should be able to try and imagine this, but none of you have ever experienced this, thankfully. It's like being a slave and you hear the the master's voice your whole life. You're born in that house, you grow up in that house, and for, let's say, 30 years, you hear that same tone of voice barking out orders all of the time and cracking the whip. And every time you hear the voice and every time you hear that tone and every time you hear the crack of the whip, there's something inside of you that you just respond viscerally. That emotions comes up, that fear is there, and you feel obligated to do this. And then all of a sudden you're set free by somebody. right? So then you're walking around the outside of the compound. You're a free man now. You're no longer under that old taskmaster. But he sits inside the compound and he barks out an order to you. And guess what's going to happen? You hear that tone, you hear that voice, and you hear the crack of the whip inside, and guess what is going to happen inside of you? For years you have obeyed that, right? And you're going to feel this emotional, visceral reaction to everything just like you did for years. But over the course of time, that begins to wane until pretty soon, hopefully, around the day that you die, you no longer respond the same way that you did back the day after you were set free from that sin. You and I have been set free from sin. Not just sin that is outside of us, but the dominating principle that ruled and governed our lives inside of us as as unbelievers. We've also been set free from the law, book of Galatians. No longer have to keep the Sabbath. We're no longer under the Sabbath law, the ceremonial law. We're no longer under the feasts and the festivals. All of those laws fulfilled in Jesus. We have been set free from those. We now obey the moral obligations of the law, but not outwardly because it's a list of standards, but inwardly because our affections have been changed. And now we are governed by the law of love, which does no harm to its neighbor. And we fulfill the law of Christ because that law is written on our heart, and we do that willingly now. We're also free from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free from the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15, there once was a time when the devil held us captive to that fear of death. Now we have been set free from that fear of death and he no longer holds that power or that fear over us. That's true freedom, isn't it? You've been freed from all of that. You say, Jim, I still live like a, like a slave. You don't have to. That's your choice now. But you don't have to live like a slave. You can live like a free man because you have been set free. And if you've been set free by the Son, you are free indeed. And I love the way Jesus refers, says that in verse 36. 
You are free and you are free truly. You are free indeed. You are, you are being free genuinely and truly. And that is a beautiful way of him expressing it. I think by, by doing that, what Jesus does is he takes this freedom that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks and he elevates it above and beyond any other type of freedom or any concept of freedom that you and I are familiar with. I think by doing that, Jesus is saying this, the type of freedom that he is describing is true freedom, genuine freedom, not a counterfeit freedom. We talked about this a little bit last week. The man who looks at, at, uh, at monogamous marriage to one woman for life and says, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a hamper on my freedom. I don't like anybody hampering my style. I want to be able to express my lusts and my desires and my drives with whomever, wherever, whenever I want to. Is that freedom? He thinks it's freedom. The devil makes him think it's freedom, but it is what? It is the worst of servitudes to live like that. And he doesn't know it. And the devil is a master at making his children think that they are expressing and enjoying freedom when in fact they are under the bondage of their lusts and their iniquities. And the devil is a master at making people who are his children think that serving Christ is the worst of servitudes and the most hampering and limiting of of lifestyles when in fact it is just the opposite. Because those who have come to Christ know that true freedom is enjoying the liberty that our soul was meant to have and that is freedom from sin and freedom from darkness, and freedom from the devil. That is the most blessed form of, of, of liberty that a man can, or a woman can enjoy. And unbelievers look at us and they think, oh, you're, you're, you're restricted. Your freedoms are limited. No, they're not. No, they're not. A man who thinks that he is going to make up his own God and live according to his own dictates and his own morality is a slave to his superstitions, a slave to his false gods, a slave to his lusts, a slave to his passions, a slave to his desires and his affections, a slave to fear of death and a guilty conscience and all of that, and he doesn't even know it. He thinks he's free. The type of freedom that Jesus is describing is true freedom, not counterfeit freedom that Satan and the world offer, but true, genuine freedom, the type of freedom that we were meant to enjoy. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And those who come to Christ know that. Give me slavery to Christ any day. I will take that any day over slavery to my passions and my desires, my flesh and sin. That is a, that is a, a no-brainer for me. Not only is it genuine freedom or true freedom, it's also the highest form of freedom. Jesus is not describing political freedom. He's not describing national freedom. He's describing one type of freedom, and that's spiritual freedom from sin. He's not describing political freedom. Let me ask you this question. If you had to choose between living under an earthly tyrant here on earth, but being spiritually free both here and for eternity, or you had to choose living a completely free libertine life here without the restrictions of any tyrant or government, but living as a slave to sin for that whole time and dying in sin as a slave to sin, which would you choose? The answer to that question determines how you view liberty and how you view the cross and what God has done for you. I would rather live 70 or 80 years here as a tyrant to an earthly master, but be spiritually free for all of eternity. I would choose that a 100 times out of a 100. Not even a race for me. The type of freedom that he is describing is the most blessed freedom and the greatest freedom, the highest form of freedom that we could possibly enjoy. Do you think that a man who is, dies in his sin is a slave to sin a millennia from now or 30,000 years from now or a million years from now suffering the wrath of God, do you think that he's going to look back on his days here on this earth and say, but at least I was free for 70 years without a government tyrant? Do you think he's going to care about that? Not one whit. Not a bit. He's not going to care. Spiritual freedom. That's what we want. Now, obviously, I'm not saying this is... Obviously, the best of both worlds is to be spiritually free and politically free, right? That's the best of both worlds. But Jesus is not speaking of political freedom. Spiritual freedom. It's genuine, true freedom. It's the highest form of freedom. And we'll close with this. It is an eternal freedom. Once you are free, you are free indeed. That's it. 
you are never sold again under the yoke and the slavery of sin. Never again. You cannot lose your salvation because here's what it would mean. It would mean that the Son has set you free and then the Son has turned around and lost you again to sin. Oh, messed it up. I guess my freedom is only temporary. It's short-lived. It doesn't last very long. It's up to Him to keep it. What type of freedom is that? What type of liberty is that? Jesus, the great liberator, sets the people whom the Father has given to Him free, and He sets them free for all of eternity, never to come under the yoke of slavery again, never to be sold back into that slave market again. Those who have enjoyed freedom in Christ enjoy genuine, true freedom as opposed to the counterfeits, the highest form of freedom that man can know, and it is an eternal freedom. Because those whom the Father has given to the Son, He sets them free, and once they're free, that's it. Free indeed. Free everlastingly. Free in this life, free in the life to come, free and eternally free. That is true, genuine, high spiritual freedom. That is what Christ in the Gospel offers you. If you are a believer, you know that. And I'm just describing to you things that you already enjoy and you already cherish. But if you are not a believer, you have no idea what this type of freedom is because you have never experienced it. And I would just ask you this. You must repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. You have to recognize what I described at the beginning, that you are a sinner and that you stand under the wrath of God without salvation, and you will stand before God's justice, the bar of His holy justice, and you will face His wrath on Judgment Day because you have lied, you have stolen, you have blasphemed His name, You have rebelled against Him. You have a sin debt that is more than you can possibly imagine. And you are in slavery to that sin. And you need somebody else to set you free. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. Three days later, He rose again. And as Paul said in the Scripture reading at the beginning in Acts chapter 13, He now offers forgiveness of sins to all who repent and believe upon Him so that you can be freed from all the things from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You can be set free. You must repent and you must believe. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for a salvation which is eternal. It is complete. It is total. And God, it is entirely a gift of Your grace. We thank You for Your Son who died on a cross to make salvation not just possible, but actual for those who belong to You and have turned and placed their faith in Christ. Thank You for such a wonderful Savior. Thank You for the opportunity and be reminded again of what the Gospel has brought to us. Thank You that the aim of the Gospel was to set us free and that we are not only free, but we are free indeed. What a glorious God you are, worthy of our praise, our honor, and our thanksgiving. We thank you for your blessed gospel and your blessed grace. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.